Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, suicidal ideation, assault, and rape that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Florida may be the sunshine state, but it's still a wild and dangerous place. Deadly alligators and snakes fill the state's swampland. Hurricanes ravage entire towns. And in the first half of the 20th century, something even more sinister grew in the Florida shadows. The Ku Klux Klan was widespread across the state, with as many as 30,000 members during the 1930s. And while the white supremacist organization lost popularity over the next few decades, Florida was a stubborn stronghold for the KKK's racist ideology well into the 1950s. In the Orlando area, many police officers were secretly in the KKK. Even a local sheriff was a card-carrying member of the domestic terror group. In one Orlando suburb, 75% of the male population was allegedly part of the Klan. And they fought against the civil rights movement tooth and nail. In 1951, the KKK unleashed an unprecedented wave of violence against black citizens known as the Florida Terror. Dozens of black-owned houses, businesses, and places of worship were bombed and burned to the ground. Some of Florida's greatest civil rights leaders were murdered in the attacks. The U.S. Justice Department couldn't stand by as Florida's black population was terrorized. The FBI may have had a spotty record when it came to civil rights, but they still headed down south to investigate. The Bureau was determined to exterminate the Ku Klux Klan once and for all. But when they got there they discovered that the Klan's grip on Florida was stronger than they even imagined. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the mysterious bombing which led to the death of activists Harry and Harriet Moore. Last week, we learned how the Moore's work as black community leaders brought them up against the KKK. This week, we'll cover the couple's murder and the failed investigations into the bombing that killed them. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. December 25th, 1951 was a cold, foggy night in Mims, Florida. 46-year-old Harry T. Moore piled several blankets onto his bed before he and his wife Harriet climbed in. They had just spent a long day celebrating Christmas with their oldest daughter, Peaches, and Harry's mother, Rosa. Now, they were exhausted. Family days like this were rare for Harry. He spent most of his time on the road because of his civil rights work for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP. And even when he was home, it was hard to relax. His fight for the rights for black Floridians made Harry unpopular among the racist white population. His life had been threatened multiple times. But Harry refused to let that ruin his evening. The holiday was a peaceful break for him, where he could stop thinking about his work for just a moment. And Harry and Harriet had more to celebrate than Christmas. It was also their 25th wedding anniversary. As the couple climbed into bed, they had no idea that it would be their last night together. All that food tired me out. It wouldn't be Christmas without a stomachache. (laughs) Good night, sweetheart. I love you. You too, darling. What was that? (sighs) This place is always making noises. Harry? At around 10.30 p.m., Harry and Harriet's 22-year-old daughter, Peaches, awoke to the sound of a massive explosion somewhere in the house. Peaches jumped out of bed and ran down the hall to see what happened. When Peaches reached her parents' bedroom, she froze. There was a massive crater where the floor had once been. A hole had also been blown through the roof, allowing Peaches to see straight out into the night sky. The explosion had been so powerful, the chimney had lifted completely off the ground and had crashed back into place. Shards of glass and the floorboards were everywhere. A chair from Harry and Harriet's bedroom had been blasted into the attic. Peaches stepped carefully into the chaos. After a few terrifying moments, she found Harry and Harriet buried under several pieces of furniture, including Harriet's heavy sewing machine. They were both moaning in pain. Mama! Mama! No, oh no! Let me get that off you! Grandma! Something awful's happened! When Peach's grandmother, Rosa, reached the room, she nearly fell into the crater herself. She carefully stepped in and tried to help free the couple from the wreckage. Soon they managed to uncover Harriet. She was somehow still conscious, mumbling incoherently. But Harry was in even worse shape. He barely seemed alive. After a few minutes, Peach's two uncles ran over from their house down the street. When they saw Harry and Harriet, they knew the couple needed medical help right away. 
all this damage and there's barely any blood. They must be torn up on the inside. Help me lift Harry. We'll carry them to the car. I wish we could call an ambulance. Wishes won't fix racism. I'll take them. The uncles gently loaded Harry and Harriet into a car. Rosa cradled Harry's drooping head on her shoulder as they sped over 35 miles to the nearest hospital. Peaches stayed behind to call the police. Harry and Harriet reached the hospital half an hour later, but the medical facility was nearly empty. Only one nurse was on duty. Peaches' uncle urged the nurse to contact the hospital's only black doctor right away. But it wasn't fast enough. Just before midnight on Christmas Day, 1951, Harry died from cerebral and internal hemorrhages. When the doctor finally arrived, he began treating Harriet. The woman was in critical condition, but she seemed stable. So the uncle left and drove back to Mims to tell Peaches about her father's death. By then, Sheriff Bill Williams had already made it to the scene and started his investigation. The sheriff was horrified by the attack on the Moors. He knew he had to do whatever he could to bring the culprit to justice. Luckily, the police department's bloodhound picked up a scent almost immediately. The dog dragged deputies 200 feet from the house to the base of an orange tree. There were footsteps everywhere, like someone had hidden behind the tree to watch the explosion. Unfortunately, the policemen were sloppy. The cops all but destroyed the tracks by walking all over them in the dark. And as a steady stream of local onlookers appeared at the crime scene, the destruction got even worse. At that point, deputies started talking to the growing crowd about possible motives for the attack. And you know Mr. and Mrs. Moore well? Sure. We go to the same church. I see them most Sundays. This attack was clearly targeted. Can you think of any reason someone may have wanted to harm the Moors? You kidding? I know exactly why this happened. Groveland. Many in Mims were convinced that Harry was killed because of his work trying to exonerate the Groveland boys. Three black men accused of raping a white woman in Groveland, Florida. Harry had been one of the loudest voices in the protest against the men's inhumane treatment. Sheriff Williams knew this case was way bigger than his small department could handle. So in the early morning hours of December 26th, Williams called up the FBI. Agents from the Daytona Beach office arrived just before sunrise. Soon, dozens of agents were swarming the home in search of evidence. The FBI agents made plaster casts of the three footprints that local police hadn't destroyed. After quick analysis, they discovered that the prints belonged to a man with size 8 shoes and a long gait. News of Harry's murder spread quickly through Mims and the rest of Florida. Over the next few days, all of the country's top newspapers were reporting the crime. Harry T. Moore was the first NAACP official to be murdered in the organization's history, and his death caused an immediate uproar. The Pittsburgh Courier wrote, Moore's death is a point of no return in American race relations. 
Soon, everyone from President Truman to Florida's governor were inundated with letters and telegrams from people demanding justice. In one letter to the White House, an NAACP officer named Arthur Spingarn wrote, Mr. President, if Harry T. Moore was wrong in his beliefs and actions, then there is no America. And all the things we dream and all the dreams we preach have no meaning, not only for Harry Moore's people, but for any people within our borders or elsewhere in the world. The killer of Harry T. Moore is the assassin of the democratic ideal. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover knew that there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the Bureau to solve the crime. With all of the public attention, the federal government could not afford to botch the case. But unfortunately, the FBI's investigation would soon unravel into a wild goose chase. Up next, we'll explore the Bureau's efforts to find the bomber and their long list of suspects. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. Harry and Harriet Moore's younger daughter, 21-year-old Evangeline was one of the last people in America to learn of her father's death. She had been on a long train ride down south to visit her family for the holidays. When Evangeline finally pulled into the Mims, Florida station on December 27, 1951, she was surprised to see the serious look on her sister Peaches' face. Peaches greeted her sister with a hug, but quickly broke down in tears. I don't know how to say it. What is it, Peaches? Just just tell me. It's not that easy. Is it Grandma? Did someone break into her house again? There was. There was a bomb. Mama is in the hospital. And Pop, well, he didn't make it. What? 
Evangeline immediately raced to the hospital to check on her mother. Nothing prepared her for the sight of Harriet in the hospital bed. Harriet's forehead had been horribly bruised from slamming into her bedroom ceiling. The blast had given her a concussion and caused internal injuries to her chest, hips, and stomach. The doctor gave her a 50-50 chance of survival. And Harriet was inconsolable about her husband's death. God can take me. I have nothing left to live for anyway. Harriet was too sick to attend Harry's funeral on January 2, 1952. But the Florida church was packed with people wishing to pay their respects. Dozens of civil rights leaders eulogized the former NAACP official. That afternoon, Harry T. Moore was buried in a segregated cemetery in Mims. The reverend ended his sermon with the following words. You can kill the prophet, but you cannot kill his message. Unfortunately, bad news was about to strike the family once again. The next day, just hours after Harry's funeral, Harriet Moore died. According to doctors, a blood clot in her lungs had blocked one of her major arteries, but Peaches and Evangeline were convinced she had died of a broken heart. The bombing had now claimed two lives, and the FBI's investigation still had zero viable suspects. After several days of interviews, the feds uncovered their first big break in the case. In July of 1951, Two white men had gone into a black-owned candy store in Mims and asked for directions to the Moors' home. One witness was able to give a detailed explanation of the men, including that one of them was wearing a red baseball cap. As it turned out, his description fit two local Ku Klux Klan members, Tillman Belvin and Earl Brooklyn. So in January of 1952, the FBI began interviewing KKK members who the Bureau had previously used as informants. One of these Klansmen had an intriguing story about Earl Brooklyn. Yeah, Earl's always been considered something of a wild card. How's that? Yeah, he was once kicked out of the Klan for being too violent, taking action without the Klan's approval. And is that what happened with Harry Moore? I can't say for sure, but I would look into him. About a year and a half ago, at a meeting just outside Orlando, Earl was asking for help for some sort of project. I wasn't sure what he was talking about, but later that night he showed me a floor plan he had drawn up. I think it was Harry Moore's house. With this new information, the FBI felt that they were on the right track. But they had to be sure. Before they questioned Brooklyn and Belvin, the FBI interviewed all of the men's close contacts. They contacted everyone from the suspect's neighbors to their in-laws to build up their case. When they finally sat down with the 41-year-old Brooklyn on January 18th, the FBI was ready. But Brooklyn was suffering from a stomach ulcer, and he was in no mood to talk to the feds. Listen, I ain't even in the Klan. Save it, Mr. Brooklyn. We've spoken to several associates of yours. They all claim you're KKK. All right, fine. Maybe I was once, but I haven't attended a meeting in over two years. I've been having health problems recently. I don't have time for that kind of stuff. Right. 
can I ask when you first learned about Harry Moore? I had never heard of the man until his house blew up. We have a person on record saying you were in possession of a floor plan of Harry Moore's home. I don't know anything about a floor plan. Like I said, I didn't even know the man. I don't keep up with the black news. Where were you the evening of December 25th? With my wife, at my friend's place, celebrating Christmas. You can ask her. Earl Brooklyn's wife and friend backed up his alibi. But the FBI wasn't convinced. They searched his home anyway and turned up a clue. Brooklyn had a baseball cap that fit the exact description of the man who asked for directions to the Moore's home. The next day, January 19th, the Bureau interrogated Tillman Belvin. Belvin was a 61-year-old car mechanic who was dying of cancer. The FBI found Belvin more cooperative than Brooklyn, but were disappointed when his interview proved to be similarly inconclusive. Belvin also had an alibi for Christmas evening corroborated by his family. Again, the FBI wasn't convinced. When they searched Belvin's home, they discovered that Belvin's shoes were size 8, just like the footprints from the crime scene. While the two men remained the leading suspects, another clan informant told the feds that the witness description from Mims matched a few other local clansmen. The Bureau widened their investigation and soon interrogated almost every local member of the KKK. But the Klan began to circle their wagons. Orange County Sheriff Dave Starr, who was an active member of the KKK, told his constituents that they should refuse to talk to the FBI. The Klan's lawyer gave similar advice, saying the FBI had no jurisdiction in the Moore case and Klansmen were not required to talk to them. By the middle of February, the FBI's probe was beginning to fall apart. After dozens of interviews, no one else confirmed the informant's claim that Earl Brooklyn had a floor plan of Harry Moore's home. Even worse, the more the Bureau learned about their informant, the less they trusted him. Apparently, the man had a personal grudge against Earl Brooklyn. Desperate for answers, the FBI expanded the scope of their inquiry even further and conducted another round of interviews with every Klansman they could get their hands on. When agents interviewed an older KKK member named Joseph Neville Cox in April, the man seemed oddly nervous. Look, I've told you everything I know. Can I go? You should know other members of the Klan are talking to us, too. So if there's something you want to get off your chest, now's the time. Is that so? What kind of proof do you got? The kind that could get people locked up for good. You all right, Cox? You're looking a little nervous. Me? <laughs> no, I'm not nervous. Just curious. Anyway, how much evidence you got so far? Uh, enough for a conviction? Plenty. Sure you don't have anything more to tell me, Mr. Cox? The very next day, Joseph Neville Cox died by suicide. His death may have seemed suspiciously timed, but the FBI did not make special note of it since Cox was not yet a suspect. That may have been a mistake. A month after Cox's death, the feds still didn't have a shred of strong evidence and they were running out of time. 
Their two primary suspects, Earl Brooklyn and Tillman Belvin, were both on their deathbeds. Brooklyn's stomach had started hemorrhaging that May, and Belvin's cancer was spreading rapidly. Across the nation, Black Americans were furious over the lack of movement in the Moore's murder case. In August of 1952, the NAACP issued a stern public statement in their annual report, denouncing the federal government's failure to make arrests. Our Department of Justice, including the FBI, has maintained a worldwide reputation for great efficiency in the investigation, apprehension, and successful prosecution of the cleverest criminals in history. We find ourselves unable to understand why such agencies are almost invariably unable to cope with violent criminal action by bigoted, prejudiced Americans against black Americans. The two FBI agents in charge of the investigation, Frank Meech and James Shannon, had an immense amount of pressure to wrap up the case. That summer, they sent an urgent request to Washington to take the case to a federal grand jury immediately, despite their incomplete evidence. The local populace is mortally in fear of the Klan. The situation is analogous to the fear of reprisal fostered by the Mafia and underworld groups. If this case is not brought before a grand jury soon, the public's confidence in federal law enforcement and in the Bureau will be reduced to nil. Nearly 10 months after the bombing on October 4, 1952, the U.S. Attorney General revealed that a federal grand jury in Miami would hear testimony regarding all of the bombings in Florida believed to have been perpetrated by the KKK. This included the explosion at the Moors' home. The grand jury trial began its inquiry in February of 1953. The jurors heard from over 100 witnesses, including 25 Klansmen. But every single KKK member denied participating in terrorist activities, and no one had anything to say about the Moors' bomb. The trial was concluded a month later when the grand jury released a heated statement condemning the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK is a cancerous growth founded on the worst instincts of mankind. Below are 19 separate incidents of violence perpetrated by Klansmen in Miami and Orlando between 1943 and 1951. A catalog of terror that seems incredible. The crimes outlined included murder, floggings, arson, and bombings. But the murder of Harry and Harriet Moore remained unsolved. The jury believed that the Orlando-area clan was involved, but had found no evidence to narrow down the list of suspects. On June 3rd, the Justice Department delivered seven indictments against Orlando Klansmen. Despite initially being the FBI's top suspects in the Moore bombing, Earl Brooklyn and Tillman Belvin were not charged. After the indictments were issued, the FBI unceremoniously dropped the Moore case entirely. The investigation was over. Adding to the injustice, the indicted Klansmen had their charges dropped six months later when a judge ruled that the federal government did not have jurisdiction in these Florida bombing cases. There was no justice for Harry and Harriet Moore, and there seemed to be no hope on the horizon. But that would change two decades later, all thanks to a mysterious confession. 
Next, we'll examine the second, third, and fourth investigation into the Moore's murder and try to solve the case ourselves. Now, back to the story. On December 26, 1977, a public memorial service was held in Mims, Florida, for Harry and Harriet Moore. The two civil rights leaders had largely been forgotten in the 26 years since their death, but the NAACP tried to revive people's memory of the slain activists. Standing at the front of the church, a former co-worker of Harry's at the Florida State Teachers Association said... God give us more men like Harry Moore. It's a shame that the children of Florida don't even know who Harry Moore was. 48-year-old Evangeline Moore was the event's special guest of honor. Peaches had died five years earlier, which meant that Evangeline was the Moore's only living daughter. She watched the memorial with tears in her eyes. Then she took the stage herself. With a clear voice, she demanded that the investigation into Harry and Harriet's death be reopened. The event garnered a ton of attention in the press. Soon, the public began calling for the Brevard County Sheriff's Office to revisit the cold case. And in January of 1978, they did. Captain Buzzy Patterson was named chief investigator. Unfortunately, the captain didn't have many leads to go off of. There were no notes or files from the original case, and any evidence that had been collected had since been lost or destroyed. So Patterson started looking for help anywhere he could find it. First, he asked the Justice Department for a copy of the FBI's old file. Then he issued a public statement saying that any person with information on the bombing of the Moore's home should immediately call the sheriff's office. After that, Patterson could only wait patiently by the phone. Amazingly, it worked. On January 16, 1978, a drunken man called the sheriff's office to make a confession. He claimed he knew, without a doubt, who killed Harry and Harriet Moore, but he would only talk in person. And so, a few days later, Patterson traveled to the man's home in the Orlando suburbs. As soon as the informant opened the door, Patterson could smell the stench of stale beer. The frail 70-year-old man told Patterson that his name was Edward Spivey and then immediately broke down in tears. (laughs) This really has you worked up, doesn't it? I, I know who killed those fellas. The man who done it died long ago died by suicide. He was a friend of mine. Let's just take a seat and we can talk about it. You can take your time. Now, Mr. Spivey, can you tell me your friend's name? Joseph Neville Cox. He came to me after the bombing and told me he'd done it. He was paid near five grand to do it, he said. Spivey admitted to Patterson that he had been a longtime member of the KKK, but now Spivey was terminally ill and wanted to absolve himself before his death. Using the FBI's files, Patterson managed to corroborate most of Spivey's story. Cox's behavior during his interviews had been suspicious, so had his suicide immediately after the interrogation. 
But despite his apparently guilty conscience, Spivey refused to testify about Cox before a grand jury. He died a few months later, and Patterson was forced to file the interview away. Both the witness and suspect were dead. The captain didn't think there was any need to act on the lead. Strangely enough, another drunken informant would emerge just a month and a half later. On March 1st, 1978, a man named Raymond Henry Jr. stumbled up to a Florida NAACP officer and claimed he built the bomb that killed the Moors. The NAACP activist called the police and Henry agreed to be interviewed on the condition the cops gave him beer. Henry claimed to have been paid to build the bomb. He implicated several local men in his story, including a Fort Pierce grocer and a lieutenant and policeman in the sheriff's department. And Henry was willing to go on the record. Finally, Captain Patterson had a lead in the case he could act on. Patterson quickly set up a follow-up meeting with Henry, but unfortunately, the man never showed. In fact, after searching for Henry for several days, it seemed like the man had disappeared entirely. Just like that, the lead was gone. Buzzy Patterson left his job at the Sheriff's Department in September of 1978. The Moore investigation was quietly closed in his absence. Charlie Frank Matthews, the NAACP officer who had reported Henry, was understandably upset that Henry's confession just fizzled out. So a year later, he leaked the story to the press. Matthews' version of Henry's confession was startling. He claimed that Henry told him Sheriff Willis McCall had bankrolled the bombing. McCall was the controversial sheriff at the center of the Groveland fiasco and an outspoken critic of the NAACP. McCall vehemently denied the charge, and Patterson told the press that Henry's story hadn't checked out. But despite Patterson's doubts, many remained convinced that McCall had been the mastermind of the Moors' deaths. People had reason to question McCall's integrity. In his decades as sheriff of Lake County, McCall was said to have been investigated 49 times. He was an unapologetic segregationist and was rumored to have been in the KKK. Plus, McCall had reason to hold a grudge against Henry Moore. Moore was the leading voice against McCall throughout the entire Groveland controversy. But with the Moore case closed and Henry's testimony unconfirmed, there was no movement towards solving the crime. Still, the investigation never remained closed for long. About a decade later, another phone call would once again revive the case. In August of 1991, an Orlando woman named Dottie Harrington came forward with a story about her ex-husband and his involvement in the Moore's murder. Florida Governor Lawton Childs officially reopened the investigation and put Inspector John Dowdy in charge. Dowdy's first order of business was interviewing Mrs. Harrington. He was my husband of 15 years. Terrible man, a member of the clan for who knows how long. I don't know how I put up with him for so long. And his name again, for the record? Frank. Frank Harrington. When did he tell you he was involved in the bombing of Harry Moore's home? I lost count. He must have told me almost a dozen times, directly and indirectly, 
said he was one of the main participants. Seemed proud of it. Dottie Harrington's account was damning, but Dottie needed to be certain. Weeks later, he finally tracked down Frank Harrington to get his side of the story. Frank steadfastly denied he had ever told his ex-wife about any type of murder. He confessed he was in the KKK for a couple of years, but said it had been after the Moors' deaths. Frank was adamant and even agreed to a polygraph. When hooked up to the machine, his answers appeared to be the truth. Dowdy dropped Frank Harrington as a suspect. After all, the FBI hadn't investigated him in 1952, and they had managed to find almost every KKK member in the Orlando area. Later, John Dowdy turned his attention to the claims Raymond Henry Jr. made in 1978. Henry had claimed that he had been paid to build the bomb by Sheriff McCall and that several local cops had helped him place the explosive. When Dowdy started looking into Henry's statement, it immediately began to crumble. Many of the police officers Henry had accused of participating in the bombing were children at the time of the murder. Some of them didn't even live in the state at the time. Dowdy finally found the elusive Raymond Henry Jr. in December of 1991. Although he had supposedly disappeared, he was actually living only 15 miles away from Fort Pierce, Florida, where he had originally confessed to building the bomb. Henry doubled down on his original confession and accusations, although his story kept changing. Over the next several weeks, Henry called Dowdy's office multiple times and shifted details in his story every time. Based on this untrustworthiness, Dowdy decided to cross Henry off the witness list. He had exhausted every lead. On April 1st, 1992, the Moore case was once again closed due to a lack of new evidence. The murder of Harry and Harriet Moore seemed doomed to go unsolved, but their daughter Evangeline wasn't willing to let people forget her parents. For over a decade, Evangeline met with NAACP officials and government agencies in an effort to continue the murder investigation. Finally, at the beginning of 2005, Florida's Attorney General, Charlie Crist, once again, reopened the investigation. And on April 16, 2006, Christ claimed that his investigation had identified the bombers. At a press conference, he announced that the culprits were Tillman Belvin, Earl Brooklyn, Joseph Cox, and Edward Spivey. Evangeline Moore was overjoyed that the murder of her parents had been supposedly solved. But Christ's investigation didn't hold up under closer examination. The Attorney General's office did not actually find any new information to back up their claims. They just used the FBI's old files to draw their conclusions. It all seemed more political than scientific. The report was full of mistakes. For example, it stated that Earl Brooklyn had confessed to the FBI in 1956, but Brooklyn had been dead for four years by then. While the four men named by Christ were indeed suspects, there were several other Klansmen in the FBI's file who could have just as easily committed the crime. And once Christ was elected governor in November of 2006, the Harry and Harriet Moore case once again faded from headlines. With that, 
The case closed once and for all. Evangeline Moore had to accept the fact that she would never know with certainty who killed her parents. But their legacies as political activists lived on. In 2004, a museum was opened alongside the Memorial Park located at the site of the Moore's home in Mims. And in 2013, Harry and Harriet Moore were inducted into Florida's Civil Rights Hall of Fame. Evangeline died on October 26, 2016, without any real answers. But at least she lived long enough to see her parents finally acknowledged as civil rights heroes. So with all that said, I believe Earl Brooklyn, Tillman Belvin, and Joseph Cox were responsible for the bombing of Harry and Harriet Moore's home. They were members of the Klan, and their names came up again and again throughout all four investigations. I partially agree. I think, without a doubt, the Orlando-area KKK was the mastermind of the bombing. But we can't know with any certainty which Klan members were involved. In any case, Harry and Harriet Moore's fight for civil rights did not die with them. They were trailblazers in a growing civil rights movement that demanded justice for black Americans. Their deaths may still be a question mark all of these years later, but their role as American heroes is clear. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Harry and Harriet Moore, amongst the many sources we used, we found before his time the untold story of Harry T. Moore, America's first civil rights martyr by Ben Green, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahay. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, Drew Lawn, Harris Markson, Julian Smith, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new podcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.